Arthur, does it help to have someone to talk to? My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose to bring laughter and joy to the world. Just me. Or is it getting crazier out there? Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. What? If you smile. What's so funny? Freak! <laughs> Gotham has lost its way. What kind of coward would do something that cold-blooded? Someone who hides behind a mask. I used to think that my life was a tragedy. But now I realize it's a comedy. You are listening to Joygasm, a video game and movie podcast. I'm Russ, Xbox Live Toaster 360. He is Steve, Xbox Live Stevevich. And we are cackling our way into episode 142 today, October 4th, 2019. Before we go any further, I have to apologize. Uh, I am getting over a bit of a head cold, so I'm sounding... A bit congested, I'm sure, to all of you. Uh, I wish that was not the case, given the fact that we are giving a, our review of the Joker movie. But uh, I just I can't, unfortunately, uh, pick and choose when that this sort of thing happens. Um, <laughs> anyway, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently in this program for this episode. We are foregoing our featured Joygasm moment of the week, as well as uh, just what's new with us and stuff, because I have a feeling there is an absolute ton to talk about with this film. And uh, also, too, I'm not sure how how uh, well my voice is going to hold up. So we're gonna we're gonna just focus right on to the uh, the movie at hand, which we have been looking forward to seeing all year long. Um. We actually, to give you a bit of a background, uh, Steve and I went to the theater at separate times to see this film. Originally, we were going to see it together, but due to me getting a little under the weather, we're trying to, to prevent him from uh, cat- catching whatever it is that I have. As, as best we can. Exactly. Sitting across from each other in an enclosed room. Exactly. Yeah. 
We'll see uh, how much all those trips to the gym serve you, Steve. Yeah, well, we'll see in three days. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> so uh, when you went to the, the movie, you went last night. You went on um, preview night. Mm. Did you have a, a sold-out theater or close to it? Not at all. It was pretty empty. Okay. Maybe about 20 or 30 people. I remember I texted you just kind of checking in and just seeing what was going on. And you had mentioned that there wasn't a lot of, of people at the time. Yeah, no. I, I found a nice little parking spot and went on in, said hello to the movie lady who was always sitting there, uh, you know, giving out tickets. That was nice. That's about it. That's about it. I went with my wife this morning and saw it October 4th. So I am very curious to hear your high-level thoughts on <laughs> this movie. Um, you, so, you asked me how it was like right after it ended. Like you knew well, I, the I, second it ended. And like you texted me. I'm like, my gosh. Just so you know, I was <laughs> counting down. I was literally looking at my Apple watch and I was looking at the time and I was thinking, okay, I know it's two hours and two minutes long. I think you'll factor in like 15 minutes or so of, of trailers and stuff before the film. Yeah. I'm sure it's probably going to end right now. Uh, Cause I was dying. I, I was, I was disappointed because I, you know, a film like this, I, I want to be with you to see just because part of the experience is being able to witness everything together at the same time. So you have to understand I'm sitting there and I think, well, I saw the movie and will there be a post credit scene? Now I've had my phone on do not disturb as to not disturb myself or anybody else. I'm being polite. Even though you are in fact disturbed, but go ahead. <clears throat> That's, uh, but I'm not trying to disturb anybody else. See, Disturbed versus disturbing. Mm. So I pull out my phone and I Google real quick, are there going to be any post credit scenes? Because I don't want to hang around. I mean, just read the credits with, you know, how you doing? What did you think of the movie? You know? And there wasn't going to be any post credit scenes, so I got up. But when I pulled out my phone to search, you texted me right then. Hey, how was it? I'm like, good grief. Um, well... I haven't collected my thoughts. I was like, I didn't want like a full on review or anything. <laughs> yeah, no. I just needed to know it was good. Like, or just, or maybe not even like good is the right word, but just, I needed some kind of feedback. So, uh, and then, and you said you replied with one word. You said rough. Yeah. It was <clears throat> rough. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's go into our high level thoughts and then we'll go into our spoiler uh, portion of the podcast itself. So, uh, what did you think of the movie overall? I, I, it was draining. It, it was well acted and you hit the nail on the head with the cinematography. I couldn't really tell that from the trailers that we were watching and talking about in earlier episodes, but yeah. the cinematography was definitely very good. Um, walking Phoenix was great. Um, but it's just not a uplifting, oh, wow, you got to see this movie kind of thing. I mean, I left the theater. It's introspective. I mean, it's, um, you walk out, you think a lot about yourself, not really, well, about yourself, but I mean, how you, you're helping society. Is there more you could do? Sure. Um, but when I got home, I was, just, I was done. I was so done. Like, maybe I should play games. No, nah, I'm going to go to bed. I'm, I'm drained. <laughs> I'm mentally drained. Sure. So... Uh, anyway, that's that's kind of what I thought. I was still thinking about it this morning, and everybody at work wanted to know, you know, how what I thought and what how the movie was. But 
I, I yeah, I, it's it, it it felt a lot like how I I when I watched the movie after I watched the movie when I when I was driving home it felt a lot like I felt after watching Taxi Driver. Yes. Almost identically the way I felt after watching Taxi Driver. Yes. Yeah, and director Todd Phillips um, has gone on record talking about how that is one of the inspirations for the film. So for you to make that um, comparison, it's like, yep. Right. What did your wife think about the movie, right? She loved it. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was crazy was like, so... Uh, we found ourselves struggling to come up with a word that accurately describes just, just what we thought of the film because we we both uh, really loved the film, but we fa- we feel as though like using like the word good, for instance, like, oh, it's such a good movie. Um, <clears throat> it's it's kind of, it's almost inappropriate in a way because it's, it's kind of to your point, you know, that the film itself um, has a lot of qualities to it, but in a way that it's very mature in its, its approach to the themes. And it's something that I think is fantastic in its execution, but it's not something of, I don't know, it, it's, it's kind of... Like I said, I'm lost. We, well, and we were too, because, well, we weren't lost. We're just lost for words as to how we, because we, because we were, we left the theater wanting to talk about it. And we left the theater like wanting to be able to like analyze it and that sort of thing. But where do you start? Um, You know, this film is super deep with a lot to process when you leave the theater, as you point out. Um, I think it's a riveting character study of the Joker. I think Joaquin Phoenix has uh, done a masterful uh, performance, you know, in, in this film, which is saying something because um, I think that there are other folks like Jack Nicholson who played the Joker, did a great job. Heath Ledger, Ledger did an excellent job as the Joker. Jared Leto. Uh, back to Walking Phoenix. Um. Yeah, Jared Leto, not, I'm, I'm, I wasn't as big of a fan of, of his performance on that, but it could have been too oh, just the, the subject material that he was given because yeah, I mean that, that movie true. overall was just a train wreck. That's very true. Uh, you know, what, what is interesting is, to, is that it is a loose adapt- adaptation of the comic book clown Prince of Crime. You know, like when you look at the backstory that they created for this, it does not necessarily fall in, into line as to like just what you've read in the comic books. To but be fair. But that's okay, though, I think. I think one of the really neat things about a, a character like Joker is there is room for being able to, like, tell different types of stories. And I think we've talked about this in the past. I've, I think I made an analogy of, like, how, you know, you think of a campfire and you have different directors who are all sitting around this campfire and they each get to tell um, their version of the story. And so um, that's essentially what you're what you're getting with the Joker, and now it's it's currently Todd Phillips's turn to be able to like tell his rendition of the Joker origin story, which is I think is great. Um, I also appreciated how the music is kind of a cousin to the Hans Zimmer Christopher Nolan Joker theme. Right. I haven't had a chance to see who the composer is. I don't know if it's Hans Zimmer um, who made a return or if it's somebody else entirely, but. I did consciously make that particular distinction when I was listening to the music where I was like, ooh, this is good. This is really cool. Just 
because again, this is a, this is a character study of of how the Joker became the Joker in the first place. So obviously, not all of the nuts and bolts are in place yet. I think that movies like this does cause me to pause and wonder about the impact a film like this has on real world folks who struggle with similar issues. And I think that that's been um, a, a topic of conversation that, that um, some people have, have had where they saw obviously what happened with the Christopher Nolan, Batman, the dark Knight rises with the unfortunate um, shooting that took place at the Colorado theater. And looking at something like this, especially after seeing this film, it's weird to say this because the film is so well done that it almost becomes potentially a danger unto itself because I could see a lot of the different components of the film and how real everything is where it might become a source of inspiration to someone who perhaps is having to contend with similar issues. Right. I mean, you, with the original uh, Christopher Nolan Batman, you could watch that movie and you think it was really cool, but you still wouldn't believe that someone would still be that villainous person. Right. And then that villainous person came out of the woodwork and did a terrible, heinous act. In this movie, I could name people who I go, oh man, that watching Joker on screen reminds me of X, y, or, you know, this person, Joe Schmo, X, Y, and Z, whoever. Like, oh man, you know, and I don't want those people to go, yeah. That's what I need to do. I need to get recognized. Yeah, I'm, and it is nervous. It's nerve wracking. Yeah, because watching Joker on screen, what it reminded me of is like the back in like junior high or high school days, where you have like an individual who wants to be accepted, and he's kind of an outcast. And you want to be nice for him because you feel compassionate for him, but you, you have nothing in common and, and you don't laugh at the same jokes and it's, it's really hard to really just try and get along. And you see him getting pushed around and he gets tired of getting pushed around and all of a sudden he pushes back, but his pushback is really hardcore violence. And then everybody wonders, man, well, what happened to him? But there's some people who also got pushed around like he did and they go, yeah! Right. And that's... It, you know, that's <clears throat> yeah. Well, and I think I think riveting is a really good word to describe that. Like when we left, we thought, man, that film was so riveting because and we'll get into a lot of this more um in just a minute, but there is there is just so much uh to this film. So um yeah, I would say let us start our drill down into the uh the spoiler portion of this podcast. Just as an FYI to you guys, you know, if you haven't seen the film, definitely pause us right now because we don't want to spoil anything for you. But if you have seen the film or you just don't care, then you can just you know, continue listening and uh, we'll do what we can. Or if you don't care about spoilers, we don't <coughs> spoil it for you. Uh, and there you go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've got this nice baritone voice thing going right now. So let's go into plot. I have quite a bit that I want to share and cover about this. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this stuff as well. How are you? I am. So Arthur Fleck is the main character that Joaquin Phoenix plays. He struggles to maintain and improve his fragile place as a functioning member of society. Um, you know, he goes to a therapist. He has a simple job. He takes his meds. He takes care of his mom, works on his passion projects of uh, becoming like a, a comedian right. in his spare time. So... Um, there is just a, it's, 
in a way, it's kind of an every man's, not every man's, but it's just, you, you look at, at the kind of the lifestyle that he has and it's like, okay, you know, you, 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 you want to encourage him to keep going, you know, because you could tell it's like, yeah, he's, he doesn't have like an ideal life. He doesn't have um, everything in place and stuff, but he's doing what he can. And um, you, you start to see a lot of these things that just start to, to break down. And um, I actually made a list here. I don't know if I even remembered everything because there's so much to go through here, but um, I did a, a character study timeline of the different things. And I, and I figured that we could go down the list and then we can kind of circle back around and, and talk more in depth about some of the stuff in the plot. Um, but looking at the timeline, you know, he, at first he's chastised by a parent on the bus. Um, and of course he shows his card and I really want to talk about that. Um, I guess we can talk about it now. Well, since we're just obviously in the moment, but, um, I thought that was a, a particularly touching scene from the standpoint of, um, I have taken public transportation before in, in the past and I have had someone do something similar where they had a card and it explained what their condition was. And it instantly um, informed me of what it was that they had. And I was able to better assist them as well as have a, a better idea of just um, how to treat this person. You know, uh, I thought that that scene was extremely well done. So very telling in terms of just how, I mean, again, it's, it's so deep. There's so many layers on this. I'm trying my best to like unravel it. Well, the maybe we should just start with, with breaking down well, how, how society is first. Well, okay. So I have, I have, okay, we'll, we'll stick to the original plan because it's, it's very tempting to like jump into this stuff. So let's, let's do the character study timeline first. So first he's chastised by a parent on the bus, shows his card, uh, gets his sign stolen. <clears throat> he's then beaten by the hoodlums, receives a gun from his coworker, psychiatrist, um, and the system, so to speak, quote unquote, is tone deaf to his needs. We discover he was released from the ward early on. You know, you see a flashback of him actually being committed. Uh, there's a gun that drops on the floor at a children's hospital where he's entertaining children. Arthur is fired from his job as a result. There are three businessmen, uh, that harass and beat Arthur relentlessly, uh, on the, the train. And Arthur defends himself. He ends up shooting two of them and then murders the third. The psych treatment funding is cut, no, which means no more medication for him. He learns that his father is Thomas Wayne, which causes him to, to go and meet Bruce and Alfred, uh, where there is kind of like a, a minor altercation of him, like trying to choke Alfred out. Uh, meets Thomas Wayne in the bathroom, gets punched by Thomas Wayne, is told Thomas Wayne is not his father in both encounters. Arthur has his first stand-up that is painfully awful. Uh, Arthur's mother has a stroke, is sent to the hospital. Two police investigators track Arthur. He's featured on the Murray show, but he's done so in a way where he's made fun of. He visits the mental ward, learns that Thomas Wayne is not his father. Uh, his mother adopted him and her boyfriend abused him severely as a child, which, you know, causes him to go to the hospital, kills his mom, enters the neighbor's apartment thinking that they have a relationship when they don't. He is visited by two ex-colleagues, kills one of them, and then finally goes on the Murray show, uses it as a confessional to be able to like air his grievances and that sort of thing. So that's, I mean, like you see how all of these things kind of stack on top of each other in a domino-like effect that 
cause his journey to end up being literally the, the Joker in the first place. And there's so much to, to go over when it comes to this stuff. So let's talk about Arthur versus society. What did, what, what do you have to think um, or say about that, Steve? So I, there's kind of two halves of the coin. There's part of society that just wants to live in their own little bubble where you don't get in their space. They don't want to help you. And they don't want to be helped themselves and they don't want to take on any more problems necessarily because they don't want those problems latched onto them. And then now they're responsible for those problems or, 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 or issues. And then you have kind of society's commitment that they need to offer help because some folks ju- like Arthur, he needs that medication because he's going to be a danger to himself and a, da- a danger to society. So how do you, you, know, you just lock him up for the rest of his life? Do you give him treatment? Like, you know, how much treatment do you give him? And uh, it, do you have an ear for him to speak to? You know, is anybody going to listen to him? So there, there is those, those two halves. And I think partly no one was listening and actually partly the responsibility falls on him because he's not, talking to enough people or enough people, uh, maybe, maybe in a way that, that is the most expressive, or at least we didn't see that. I mean, he had that scene with the, the therapist where he says, all I have are bad thoughts. Mm. And we never saw any of his bad thoughts except for when he brought out his journal to give to her. And then she's kind of going, oh my goodness, you're, you're borderline suicidal. You're a lunatic. And how long had he been seeing her? I mean, we just don't know. What all did he say to her? We don't know. Um, so we just basically interpreted that one scene as him saying, you know, you're not listening to me. And she's thinking, okay, maybe I didn't, maybe I have, maybe I haven't, but we don't know that. We just see that one scene for itself. So some, I think responsibility does fall on Arthur for trying to, um, or maybe not communicating enough of the needs that he must be, uh, attended to, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Uh, cause if we don't know, we can't help. Yeah, I think it's important. Uh, I think one of the lessons that the the film teaches is how vital it is to be informed. You have to be informed with uh, these these kinds of things in order to make um, better choices and decisions on just you know how to help these people. And I think that when it comes to Arthur versus society, you know we we saw <clears throat> um, how there were there was like a lack of empathy of his condition, uh, just the 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 ongoing inflicted cruelty. Uh, in multiple capacities was, uh, was at times was just really hard to watch as was the callousness of just day-to-day interactions and in, in life that he had. And, um, you know, it poses the question, you know, at the end, how does Arthur overcome society? Well, I think in a way he, he shoots himself in the foot because if you think about it, he, the, the first scene when he gets mugged and the sign's broken and he, he's trying to do the best thing. He's being, I mean, good good golly. He's being a sign flipper for crying out loud. Who's going to get mad at a sign flipper? He's not hurting anybody. You know, he's just out there dancing. Yeah, he looks goofy. He's supposed to. He's a clown, sure. right? So, um, so yeah, those, those kids need to get slapped. But instead of him going to his boss or going to a payphone and saying, hey, I just got mugged, you know, or going back to the business and saying, this is what happened to me. He just waits for his boss to hear about it in the papers. And maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But when he gets back to work, his boss is going, what are you doing? You know, you right. just took off. You took their sign like we're, they're paying you. And so he, and his response was, well, didn't you hear? 
Well, no, I didn't hear every little mugging that happens on the street. I'm sorry. Or if he, you know, and it was his choice to bring the gun, the pistol to a children's hospital. I mean, yes, you want to protect yourself, but that is a poor choice again. Um, well, and I think when it comes to, I think a lot of the, uh, stuff of what you're talking about, you know, we're watching someone who, okay, first of all, we watch him get beaten, uh, in like the, the first five minutes of the movie, you know, and it's pretty bad. I mean, like, like first, you know, someone steals something that doesn't, you know, belong even to him in the first place. It's part of his job. He's trying to be responsible, like you said, and, and retrieve it. And then he's like, I mean, he is beaten pretty badly in yeah. that alleyway. And, um, you know, there's, there's a certain level of detachment that his boss has where um, the boss clearly doesn't really have very much concern for his uh, employee safety. And, um, you know, I think that when it comes to the gun thing where, um, you know, and we'll get more into this later, but just you watch as how Arthur tries to, to navigate these channels where let's be real. If any of us were to get beaten in the back of an alleyway by like five people, we're going to be a little more, careful is an understatement, but like when we go out in the public, we're going to be looking over our shoulders. We're going to be, um, you know, kind of more fearful for our well being. That, that, that kind of thing really changes one's perspective on how do you maintain your safety? And there are more questions to that <clears throat> as it goes on, but I don't, I don't want to digress too much because there's a lot more to talk about, but when it comes to Arthur versus society, I think, you know, he's able to overcome all these things in a manner of, of speaking um, almost in a passive way where he doesn't, you know, it's, it's almost like, like his actions of um, killing those three businessmen on the train indirectly cause a society to all of a sudden accept him and flaunt him, even though he, that wasn't his intention in the first place. You know, by the end of the film, they're just absolutely singing his praises and all this other stuff. But, you know, he even said in the film, he's like, I don't even care what they're doing. You know, I just, I don't, I don't understand, you know, what, what is it that's going on? I've got my own stuff I'm having to deal with, um, which was really, really cool to see that too. Now, when Arthur um, is examined from like a man versus man um, side of things, of course, he's beaten, he's ignored, he's mocked, he's betrayed. Um and I mean, we see how with, with that type of conflict, um, eventually he's able to overcome those things where he becomes more assertive and even more aggressive, depending on what, on what circumstance it is that we're talking about. But, you know, looking at um, some of the things where he's able to talk to Bruce Wayne. He's able to talk to Thomas Wayne, that sort of thing, and get more information about um, who his father truly is and that sort of thing. That was really cool, but where like he's able to, you know, despite having to go through those, those conflicts, he's able to, to gain the necessary information that, that he needs of that. And also push forward with basically just kind of <clears throat> detaching himself from society overall and being able to just you know, come up with a, his own kind of game plan as to what he's going to do because he just, he, he gives up basically. 
Or he gives in. That too. Um, and actually that leads us into like, you know, uh, Arthur versus self where he's acutely aware of his condition. I think that was one of the really neat things about the film was like, it wasn't like he didn't believe he wasn't crazy or didn't have issues or whatever. He, I mean, he was really begging people to like help him out, you know, just saying, Hey, look, this is what's going on. Well, I don't know about begging. I mean, he didn't want to be a burden to society. He knew he needed help, but he didn't want to, he didn't go around like panhandling for it. You no, know no, what I'm no, saying? I, I, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying begging like that. I'm talking about how, you know, like he talked to the, the psych ward, for instance, saying like, they let me out and I don't think I should have been let out of the ward. You know, it does a flashback to him banging right. his head on the, on the glass window of, of his cell door. And plus he told a therapist that he liked it there. <laughs> He did. Yeah. I mean, he said he liked it. And also, I mean, he was saying too, how he needs different types of medications and she just seven of them. Well, he already has seven. And that was her, her response. She's like, Arthur, you already have seven different medications. He's like, I just, I'm just so tired of not feeling happy. I know I'm supposed to feel happy, but like, I just don't know what, you know, again, that's a cry for help. Right. And he, he did not receive that. Um, all other aspects of Arthur versus self, um, he obviously has uh, social awkwardness. He's mentally insane. Um, he hallucinates and fantasizes about euphoric encounters, like you know the 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 neighbor. Yeah, the neighbor having like a supposed relationship with the neighbor, or even like the the daydreaming fantasy of him getting to meet uh, Murray, right? And how kindly he tr- he uh, treats Arthur and that sort of thing. You know, I, I think that um, there's quite a bit of that. Um, another th- Arthur versus self item here is that he, um, his laughter, he laughs uncontrollably as a coping mechanism. This is one of my favorite aspects of the film because obviously the Joker character um, is iconic with his laughter. You, there's a certain laugh that works. Obviously Mark Hamill does a fantastic job with it. Jack Nicholson has done a wonderful job. So is Heath Ledger. And, but what's interesting is no one has really, examined the laugh before because everyone just kind of wrote it off as the Joker laughs. It's just, yeah. Oh, he's, he's psycho. He's just laughing and you know, he's so evil and and that's it. It's like, well, no, let's examine this for a moment and see what's going on. I thought it was brilliant because in this film, they, they explore the idea of it being a coping mechanism that manifested itself back when he was a child and was abused horrifically. And how it almost, you know, the way it sounded, I mean, it sounded painful. Like it, it wasn't like a, like this happy laugh or whatever. I mean, it was like something that was conjuring up inside of him that was trying to make its way out. And like, he was trying to suppress it, but he couldn't. And, you know, I just, I felt so bad for him. You know what that's, what it's going to turn into. That laugh is going to turn into a golem, golem. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> So in terms of how, I mean, how does he overcome this particular conflict of, of uh, man versus self? You know, I think that he just comes to terms with what he's become. He's accepted who he is. Having exhausted every option that he could think of to try and help himself along, which, I mean, if you look at all these different things he did, um, he made a, a very valiant effort to try and make things work and they just didn't. So then he ends up just kind of accepting who he is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As a viewer, I'm sitting there and I am rooting for him, but I'm rooting for him in a good way. You know, I, I know 
what to expect in the end because yeah. the movie is called what it's called. You know what he will ultimately become. Right. But you want to see him do the right thing and you want to see him pull through. You want to see him pull himself up by the clown bootstraps that he has. And I think there's even a scene where he's like tying his shoes, like, come on, I need to get it together. And you, and maybe I'm the only one who felt that way, but I really wanted to pull for him. I thought, I mean, oh yeah. You know, the guy is, you know, one one thing you didn't mention either is the guy is skin and bones. And it's even his mom recognizes it. And there's many scenes of him. His rib cage is showing. Um, I mean, it, it, his skin is so tight around his muscles. He's not a, a strong guy, but you see his anatomy because he's wound so tight. Right. And his bones just popping out. Yet his mom doesn't say, you know, you need to eat. You, you need to eat this. No, I'm not going to eat. You know, you you need some protein. <laughs> You're just struggling here. Um so, I mean, towards the, I mean, there were scenes where I was covering my head, like, oh, wincing, like, this is so painful to watch. This is so bad. Like, come on, dude. Come on. I'm rooting for you. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway. Uh, when, when it comes to Arthur versus fate, obviously, no meds means that his mental issues are going to get worse. Um, he tries to fit in, but fails ultimately. Arthur yearns to know about his family history. He tries to do the right thing, but complicates his situation. He desires to have someone truly listen and empathize. And again, like we talked about, I mean, like when it comes to um, his conflict with fate, all of those things just compound upon each other that where, you know, he has no choice but to accept his fate and as his, his way out, even though it's not a way out at all. It's, it's, you know, plunging him further into darkness uh, and of course, Arthur versus his environment. I mean, he lives in the projects. It's dilapidated. It's low rent building. You know, it's kind of the inner city life. Um, I, you know, I don't even know necessarily. I, I think he's he's able to overcome the the environment conflicts by just having been in that for so long and being able to navigate through the channels, like you know, him making his way to the the mental ward or. Um, going to the comedy clubs or being able to find his way through public transportation, you know, like he's been able to adapt to a lot of those um, different environments that someone like you and or myself would be just be like, man, this is, this is not good. You know, and I think that he, he does register that on a certain level, but I think he's able to adapt in that, in that regard. But um, so there are a number of things too that I think the film um, does a wonderful job on. And I think what is, is just one of the main points that I want to make about this movie is I love how the narrative ambiguity is one of the film's greatest strengths. And what I mean by that is that literally in every scene that you see, the film itself does not take a side on anything. That is profound because you can literally have a person who stands on any side of an issue and say, yep, see that? That's what I'm talking about. That's why I feel this way about X, Y, and Z. But then you could have the same thing, same scene be shown to someone who has the opposing view and said, see, that's exactly how I feel about X, Y, and Z. It's amazing to me. It yeah. is it is profound to watch a movie like this because it 
holds this flashlight up and just shines it so brightly on issues that are very relevant in today's world. But it does so in a way that forces people to have uncomfortable conversations and discussions that are intellectually responsible. Because if you go on social media, for example, you see a lot of people just, you know, name calling each other or they believe certain things and don't believe other things. And if you don't agree with me, well, then blah, blah, blah. This film completely sidesteps that and shows what the situation is. Um, you know, you there's, know, there's three sides to every story, Russ. When it comes, like, for instance, the commentary on mental ill patients, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. How are they treated in public? Are government systems um, helpful or tone deaf to patients? Does medication really help? Should there be comprehensive reform to how mental patients are treated? You know, the system is failing its clients in its current state. And so it causes one to have that type of really sober conversation of, you know, asking those hard questions where you watch this thing and, you know, you see how Arthur Fleck is treated in public and it's, it's a disgrace. It's horrible. Um, you know, at the same time, there is a, a, a very conscious need to have some kind of program or system in place and, you know, as we know, like, you know, there are certain government programs that are there to, to assist people with uh, mental illness or, or disorders or whatever. But are those systems working? And are they working by design? See, that's a huge thing, too, is that you could have the perfect setup that is um, concepted and everything else. But if the people who fill those positions are not actually like really doing their jobs to the best of their ability and are just kind of there to collect a paycheck... That's not helping. I mean, that's why in the movie you watch Arthur Flick talk about, he's like, you know, all I have are bad thoughts. You don't listen to me. You know, that was such a huge line that he said where, you know, she literally was, she was just going through the motions. Oh, this is patient number six, five, three, zero one, whatever. You know, there, there was not a sense of, urgency or conviction on her part to want to try and help this person get better. And I think that that, that's, I don't know. It's those are, that's those are part of very hard conversations to have. You know, when it comes to the medication, you know, are medications really helpful or are they just lobotomizing the, the consumer who's taking the medications in the first place? Like, Oh, well, you know, he's not a danger to himself. Well, yeah, but he's a carrot now, Yeah, you know, but the other side is, well, do we just create these programs for people to be dependent on them? True. Because you want, the programs are there to assist people to get back on their feet. You want to, to empower these you, people. You want to empower them. You want to see them be successful. You don't want them just going to a therapist every single day of their life and taking drugs every single day of their life. And that's, the, that's their life. Yeah. And the dependency thing that like you talk about too is important because as we saw in the film, for instance, um, their funding got cut. So he had no more access to the medications he needed. And he was taking seven different medications that helped him function or semi-function on a daily basis. <coughs> Excuse me. Semi-function. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, another commentary too is on guns. You know, um, the film demonstrates how easily it is to potentially obtain one. You know, like he's he's at his job and so, you know, his co- colleague heard about what happened to him. He feels bad for him. He's trying to help his buddy out. So, hey, you, you use this gun to defend yourself. You know, the the 
intentions behind that act are noble, but it's irresponsible for him to do that, not knowing this man's history. Um, you know, the dangers of someone owning a gun who shouldn't is very prevalent, you know, but at the same time, the film also shows how using guns for self-defense is very important too. You know, when he's on the train and those three businessmen, I mean, they are beating him senselessly. There was no let up. It wasn't like the alleyway where you had the teenagers kind of beating on him and stuff. I mean, there was no let up. And when you're in a situation like that too, he's by himself in a train car. No, there's no other witnesses around. You don't know if they're going to let up or not. You fear for, you fear for your life. And I think what, what I think is interesting about that particular scene too, was you saw him defend himself with the first two guys because he shot the two and then the third one um, started running away. But well, then he, he shot him. He was he shot him in the, uh, in the leg, the glute or yeah, the hamstring or something, yeah. the hammy. But that's when it changed where he then pursued the third person and it was no longer defense at that point. At that point, it was murder. You know, there, there's a huge change in the mindset of that. And, um, you know, the perception of a gun in public sight <clears throat> you know, that that's another thing too, where like the, you know, a lot of uh, hot button issues that get placed and I want to make it a, make it a point on this program to say, you know, we're not talking to advocate one way or another, but we are simply wanting to focus on a lot of the things that this film brings up through its visual imagery and the situations and events that transpire. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that, um, God, Man, it's it's just crazy when I think of just the different scenes. Like, you know, the bus scene with the kid. Um, I was talking to my wife about that. And going back to the whole narrative ambiguity thing. On the one hand, you know, he's he's just entertaining this kid who's I mean, obviously staring at him as he's... I mean, I've been... We've all been there, okay? It doesn't matter if you're on a flight or you're on a bus or whatever. And there's some kid who's just... He's turned around, he or she is turn around in their chair and they're just staring at you. And you're like, really? I got I to gotta deal with this for like two hours, three hours. Right. <clears throat> so he makes the most of it by making faces and gets the kid to laugh. Right. If you think about it, the child is the only person in that entire film who actually thinks Arthur Fleck is funny. Right. <laughs> and what's crazy about it is that the child's mother starts to chastise Arthur Fleck for that and say, you know, stop bothering my child. You know, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, stop having your kids stare at me <clears throat> nonstop. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and I think, you know, you know, Leslie was talking about how as a mom, especially when you're in um, kind of more of an inner city environment. And of course, in this film too, it's, it, you're, you're led to believe how, um, there's just a lot of crime going on. There's a, there's a um, destabilization of just kind of everyday safety and that sort of thing. So you're, you're naturally as the public, you're on a bit more on edge. You want to watch out for your family and that sort of thing. And so, and especially when you're on public transportation, you're a little more guarded. So again, it's like, well, yeah, like, like, would you do it? Would you, would you not say something like, how would you go about that? So you can see it from both ways. Um, <clears throat> What were you going to say? I was thinking of the scene where he sees Bruce outside the, the front gate. And granted, Arthur had been off his medication for a while, but he you can't tell how 
his mind wanted to be more intrusive. I mean, he's looking at Bruce and he reaches through uh, the gate and sticks his fingers in Bruce's right. mouth and like holds it up, you know, in, in a way, you know. Trying to get Bruce to smile. Well, yeah, but I mean, like <laughs> stretched his face in a sense. Right. Um, I mean, what stranger would do that? You know, there are other um, examples I wanted to share <clears throat> regarding the narrative ambiguity. When Arthur is leaving the woman's apartment, we have no idea what happened to right. uh, the woman or her daughter. It's left up to our interpretation of that. Um, you know, also the budding relationship he supposedly had with the woman. Did he hallucinate that that whole thing happened or did it not? I, for one, think that he probably kind of hallucinated that. Yeah, I think that's what they they want you to believe or else. Why would she say, Are, you're, you're the guy from across the hall? Right. I mean, if they just broke up, she wouldn't have just, well, I mean, I guess she could have had memory problems, but we don't know. You know, another <clears throat> example of this too is just walking down the psych ward at the end um, with the bloody feet. We, you know, it's like, okay, well, clearly something bad happened. We don't know if like the woman he was just talking to is no longer there or if maybe it's someone else. Or maybe he, who knows? But like again, I think what's really cool about this film is how they leave a lot of those things up to your imagination to fill in the blanks. So, um, did you have any other thoughts about just just the plot in general? I'm trying my best to like compartmentalize all these different things because there's so much to cover here. Yeah, you know, I I don't want to go too far on it because we don't we have other stuff to talk about. One one thing you could start to see though, was this budding, in a sense, of what could be his obsession with Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. Because he, he, had that, he had that knowledge of his stepmom, or his stepmom, his mother. Who actually, well, no, she, he comes to find out she is his stepmother. Well, not, well, his foster mother. Right. Not stepmother. Well, I think that's what a stepmother is, right? Like when you get when you're adopted by someone, that's your stepmom. Um, if you're if you're a parent, if 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 I am your new dad because I married your mom, then I'm your stepfather. But if we are parents, if I have a wife and we adopt you from an orphanage, then we are your foster parents. Okay. Um, but anyhow, so he was he had been speaking with his foster mom about the work that she had done with Thomas Wayne and how he's such a great man and how if he knew the conditions they were living in, how he would step in to help them out. And then he approaches Thomas Wayne at the, at the opera, I think it was, uh, or, you know, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a movie. It was a movie. Yeah. It was like a comedy show. Approaches him in the bathroom and, um, says, you know, kind of gets in his face and he ends up getting hit. Um, but he sees Bruce as you could be my brother and you have everything and I'm trying to make people happy. You're not even trying to make people happy. Of course, Bruce is quite young in the movie, but he had everything that Joker actually didn't even want, but all Joker really wanted or Arthur, I should say, is to make people laugh and happy. And he looks at the horrible life that he has, he's had and the kicks that he's taken and the emotional punches that he's also received. And you could see him start to obsess with Bruce Wayne. 
Mm-hmm. I could see where that whole thing starts. They didn't get into it in the movie, but you can see the seeds being planted. And of course, that whole entire premise was false. That you know, Joker was not related at all. Right. You know, the we come to find out that his mother, which I mean, I didn't even see that coming at all. Right. Was like his mother was cuckoo, and obviously had some kind of relationship in the past where like maybe she had a restraining order placed against her or something because she just had this thing in her head where like she and Thomas Wayne were lovers and all this other kind of stuff and. Um, <clears throat> You know, for him to go through this this roller coaster ride where he discovers this information from her, so then he thinks, "Oh, Thomas Wayne is my dad." Because why would mom lie? And he's trying to do the good thing of going and right. seeking him out to tell him. Yeah, because he's trying to save his mom and he's trying to right. save the situation. But then he also comes to find out too. And, and each of these scenes too are so well done. Like like the bathroom scene is intense because again. On one side, you have Arthur who's just, he's trying to, he so desperately wants to have his family together. He wants, you know, he, he yearns for a meaningful relationship with someone. And he be- begins to pin his hopes on having a father figure and realizes that, that this guy clearly wants nothing to do with him. But on the other side, I mean, can you, I mean, you're, can you imagine going into a public restroom? You know, you're just going to the bathroom and there's some dude who, who's like, it's just you and him in the room. And he's like, obviously taking interest in you and staring at you. And you I got mean, a lot to lose. <clears throat> yeah. You're just like, uh, what's going on? You know, but at the same time too, even when at the end, kind of right before he gets punched, you watch Joaquin Phoenix deliver his lines and he does so with such conviction of just, he's like, why is everyone so mean to me? Why is everyone so rude to me and just treats me this way? And I'm all I'm trying to do is be nice and, you know, bring joy da, da, da. you know, like, like I loved how that was delivered. Um, and then of course, when he's, uh, at the ward itself, the psych ward, and he manages to wrestle away the, the booklet of his mother, that was a great scene too, where the the guy who was the clerk, I loved his whole change in demeanor. Yeah, I saw that. I'm like, oh man, like, and you could tell with him too, like he was just like, oh my gosh, like you could t- like there was so much range of acting emotion with that that particular actor, where he was able to just go from, hey, I'm just helping this person out. Here's here's the document stuff to finding out about, oh my gosh, like you know, this poor kid has been like brutalized to then discovering that that kid is standing in front of me to then fearing for his safety too. I mean, like there was just so much that was unsaid. Well, plus do I let this person actually leave the hospital? Right. Cause I could say, I could tell something's not right with them. I mean, that clerk was, was in the thick of it on a daily basis. So he could tell. Yeah. He could tell. He wasn't a doctor, but he could tell. Yeah. Yes. Um, Do you have any other thoughts on, on plot? Otherwise we'll just move forward. You know, I, I was trying to find a good Joker quote. Um, <laughs> and I think I found one. Um, now I don't know what comic this was from. Um, but I will, I will read it to you. I don't know what, I don't know what issue this was from. You probably know. You could probably tell me quote. All it takes is one bad day to reduce the sanest man to lunacy this is how far the world is from where I am. One bad day. 
I recognize the quote, but I don't, mm, I couldn't tell you what issue number that was. Now, if you think about if you had a bad day at work, whatnot, and then you just go, well, tomorrow's a new day. Uh, you know, I'll be fine. I'm, 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 I'm bad day. No, I'm good. Yeah. But uh, a sequence of hard hits, I mean, day after day after day. And this was just a glimpse that we saw. I mean, this stuff had been building up his entire life. Right. So that quote could be placed almost anywhere in the movie. I think, too, when it comes to his childhood, there's a moment of self-discovery there for him because it was apparent that he had blocked his childhood in his, his um, memory because it was so awful. That was the thing too, was like, we don't ever know who his true parents are, his biological parents, but we do find out about how, um, <clears throat> you know, his, his um, foster mother was a mental case herself and she didn't take good care of him. And furthermore, the boyfriend she had was even worse. I mean, just doing these horrible things like chaining him up to a radiator and he had like this horrible uh, injury to his head, which I think if I remember correctly is actually the catalyst for what causes him to have those fits of laughter. You know, because again, the laughing itself in this film, it was, it was explored to be a coping mechanism. If you notice when he laughs, most of the laughs that he has are in uncomfortable situations. Do you notice that? I saw it. It was in an uncomfortable situations. And then it was other in other situations where he just thought, oh, I need to laugh at this time. Yes. Like there were, there were certain uncomfortable laughs like that. But when he was in danger, he start, that right. laugh started to come up. Right. I was, I took really just keen note of that where I was just like, wait, this is different. This is very different, which also can play into like, you know, if we um, were to look beyond this origin story and see like, as the Joker becomes a Joker and, and all the cackling and laughing, suddenly it's like, wow, like there is so much more to the laugh than it just being a laugh. Um, you know, like, like the subway scene, for instance, with those three guys, he felt bad for the girl. Right. And it was making him uncomfortable. And so he started having the fits of laughter. And then the men came over and started to bully him and it caused it to go even worse. And the men started to beat him. I mean, it's just it, the worse it got, the more violent the laughing got too. And it, it, all I could think about was how him being a boy and how this boyfriend of his foster mom uh, treated him and how like that was the only way he could like even deal with like all the, the horrible stuff that went on. I mean, it's there, there, there's a lot of, of palpable stuff in there that just like, wow, like this stuff's deep. <laughs> so when it comes to cinematography, I know that you, you um, mentioned this earlier. I absolutely love the cinematography in this. I could tell from the, the trailer itself. I was like, man, I'm going to dig the, the colors in this and the framing of the shots and stuff is really, really cool. Um, <clears throat> and of course, like what I, I mentioned earlier to the soundtrack, look, do me a favor, look up who did the soundtrack for this movie. Um, because just because when it came to some of those types of guitar riffs that we all know and love from um, Christopher Nolan's Heath Ledger, the dark Knight movie, that was definitely a really, really cool theme for the Joker. And they kind of do something that's similar in this film, which I appreciated. Also, in some of the other scenes that didn't have that necessarily, there was a lot of great 
just mood music that was going on that that I thought fit fit really really well. Um, the film itself takes place in the 1980s, and I think that's one of the things I think is cool too is that the the the, the time period that was chosen. I don't know. It it just it shows a world without iPhones, without internet. How a lot of your day to day involvements and activities and interactions, that sort of thing, um, were done much more in person. And I'm I was really happy to see just how you know smoking was so much more prevalent. Not that I advocate for smoking, but just how in the '80s it was just more prevalent. And uh, <clears throat> you know the, the just the the hairstyles, the the dress. Um, everything I thought was, was just captured uh, super well. Uh, if you can read that, it's uh, Hildur something. I have no idea. Well, that's who composed it. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, I say we go into movie trivia uh, courtesy of IMDb, and then we can provide our final thoughts, unless you have anything else you want to say, Steve. No, go right into it, Russ. All right, I found some fun little nuggets here. Oh, boy. Walking uh, Phoenix called Perfecting the Joker's Laugh the toughest part of playing the character. The movie is meant to start a new company that will produce standalone DC movies. Nice. <clears throat> Joaquin Phoenix based his laugh on videos of people suffering from pathological laughter. Uh, the joke, when I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me when no one's, well, no one's laughing now, end quote, is inspired by the late British comedian Bob Monkhouse's people used to laugh at me when I said I wanted to be a comedian. Well, they're not laughing now. Joaquin Phoenix was good friends with the late Heath Ledger, who won an Oscar for his portrayal as a Joker in 2008's Dark Knight. The Joker's makeup is very similar to John Wayne Gacy's, who was a serial killer who would often entertain children while dressed as Pogo the Clown. This makeup style was shunned by working clowns at the time as they strictly prohibit sharp ends in their makeup as it scares children. So like if you, wasn't Pogo? I thought I saw Pogo like a sign in his workplace. I don't know. I I swore I saw it say Pogo whenever he was there. You'll have, you'll have uh, to see it again, Ross. And tell I'll me. Have to see it again. The filmmakers <clears throat> used the fake working title Romeo while filming to keep the film's production a secret. Speaking about the villain's iconic laugh, Phoenix called it something that almost was painful. I think for Joker, it's part of him that wants to emerge. I think we all kind of assume that a Joker laugh is, and it felt like a new fresh way of looking at it. I didn't think that I could do it. I think, uh, I kind of practiced alone, but I asked Todd to come over to audition my laugh. I felt like I, I had to be able to do it on the spot and in front of somebody else. It was really uncomfortable. It took me a long time. And it, it just makes, I mean, I watch it. Man. My even um, Leslie and I, when we left the theater, we talked about how like our throats started to feel painful watching him laugh. Did you have that? I, I didn't feel <coughs> like my throat was was painful watching him laugh, but um, I did feel I, I did feel a strain for him. Yeah, Vigo Mortensen. No, oh, Vigo turned down the role as Thomas Wayne. 
Oh, that's unfortunate. I know. I was thinking, man, that would have been pretty cool. Yeah. In September 2019, Joker director and co-writer Todd Phillips said he wants comic book movie fans to know that there is no chance of Joaquin Phoenix's villain and Robert Pattinson's Batman ever crossing over on the big screen. He added that doesn't mean Pattinson won't ever possibly face off against Joker. It just won't be his version. And I say, yay. <laughs> Early footage shows Arthur walking by a sign for Amusement Mile, Gotham City's version of Coney Island, which features prominently in the original Killing Joke graphic novel. Joker co-creator Bill Finger was partly inspired by a sign for... Uh, what is this? Steeplechase Park in the real Coney Island, which featured a grotesque grinning face. For the Joker's laugh, Todd Phillips broke down into three types. The affliction laugh, the one of the guys... Um, wait, let me back up. It says it's the, one, the first one is the affliction laugh, the one of... I don't know why they, how they wrote this way. He said it's one of the guys laugh in the authentic joy laugh. Uh, what? Is, how do they write that? What are my notes saying here? Oh, I see. Okay. So the three main types. The first one is the affliction laugh. The second one is the, you know, quote, one of the guys laugh. And the third one is the authentic joy laugh. The director described it to Phoenix as something that is almost painful, part of him that's trying to emerge. That was a really interesting way of looking at this laugh. We all assume what a Joker laugh is. This was new and exciting. With Joaquin Phoenix playing the Joker, all the major cast members of Gladiator have now played mentors slash origin story characters for all the current DC superheroes so far. Russell Crowe has played Superman's father, Jor-El. Connie Nielsen played Wonder Woman's mother, Queen uh, Hippolyta? Hippolyta? Hippolyta. Hippolyta. <clears throat> Anjumon Hunsu played Shazam, the wizard, and King Riku in Aquaman. I thought that was pretty cool. That's right. Yeah. You didn't say it right, though. Uh, yeah. How do, I, how do you say it? Shazam! Oh, thank you. Due to difference in time zones, the first trailer was released on April 4th in Australia, which is also the birthday of the late Australian actor Heath Ledger, who played the Joker in The Dark Knight of 2008. I thought that was pretty cool. And finally, during the protest scene when Arthur dances on top of the police car near the end of the film, there's a wide shot and a billboard in the background that says Ace in the Hole, which is a line Heath Ledger's Joker says in the dark night. And that is your IMDb trivia for you there, Steve. Hmm. Thank you, Ron. So what are your concluding thoughts? Well, it's amazing how when we watch the trailer how many of our thoughts came together for exactly how the film was going to be interpreted by each of us. You saw it and said, this is what I, everything I want it to, it to be and how the cinematography was going to be. I didn't see the cinematography, but I just saw it as this is going to be a concern <laughs> for me with the rest of society watching this film. And that's exactly how I, how I felt leaving it. It reminded me of a lot of the prankster YouTubers who go around, they film them, you know, doing what random pranks to unsuspecting people and crowds and running your know, way, trying to not get beat up and people just get enough of it. I mean, it, it, it's a reflection on society and I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's just worrisome. 
It's a hard movie to watch. It is. I think it's very, very well done, but no one can just go, hey, watch this movie. You know, unless you're going to be <laughs> learning about psychiatric, you know, teachings or psychological teachings or something like that. I mean, that's what you can really watch the film for. If you're a comic book fan, you're going to love it. Um, but it, it's odd because if, if you were not a Batman fan, you could still go watch The Dark Knight and think it's terrific. You could think it's a wonderful movie and you can appreciate why Batman has the fan base that it has. You can really see it. The movie is so well done. With this, you can't really suggest those same people watch it. Um, it it's, it's too hard to watch. It's too difficult. And then at that point, you can't really say that it's a, that's where the, the, the problem is. You can't say it's a really good movie. You can say it's a, it's very well made, but you can't say it's a good movie. I don't even really want to watch it again because of how it made me feel. You know, if I wanted to show someone an example of good acting, good cinematography, um, you know, blueprints that you can take. Uh, examples from other movies and and show that I could still work in movies later on um, via Taxi Driver and this you know this I think they're like thirty years apart maybe more um, then you could you could definitely use it as a lesson for that but by and large I mean I'm glad I saw it I'm glad they made it I just don't have, I just don't care to watch it again and so what rating would you give it <coughs> excuse me man that's tough um. You know, I'd probably say three and a half stars. Okay. I think that you touched on a lot of things that are similar to my mindset of this film. Um, I think that the film is, it is difficult to watch, but but it's a necessary difficulty. I think that there are a lot of uncomfortable topics of conversation that this film addresses and explores. And quite honestly, I think it's a dialogue that needs to be had in the real world regarding these same types of issues. I think that, as I've said in, in the, this program, one of the biggest strengths of this film is the narrative ambigu- ambiguity. Um, it, it is amazing to me when a film can do what this film has done with so many hot button issues that people are so quick to have knee jerk reactions to and be able to provide a mirror that holds you know up to society and say look you know that this is how um we are behaving um in many different capacities and what the ramifications or results are if we don't start really making um a change for good here and i think that it's it's i'm with you we're like it's not a film that i can watch over and over and over again you know, I think it'll be like a once in a while kind of movie where like if I'm in the mood for it, I want to watch it, you know, I'll watch it again. Which is not to say that it is a film that's bad by any stretch. I honestly think this is one of my favorite films of the year. I think that, that the, a film like this is so amazingly deep and I'm really, really glad that they have approached the material in the way that they have because it's so thought provoking and doesn't just stop at a one-dimensional shallow you know crazy guy in a purple suit cackling there's a rawness to the film 
that I find to be very riveting. It's so unapologetic in its authenticity. And I think that's partly what makes me squirm in my chair a bit watching some of these scenes is you see so much of the stuff that goes on that could either be um, you know, prevented or could have been marginalized or handled differently. And it's, it's just, it's a byproduct. Joker is literally a byproduct of his environment of, of the people he interacts with. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting tale. I will say that was also very responsible of the film is that it doesn't glorify the violence at all. I never got any kind of romanticized like, oh, look how badass the Joker is. You know, there, there, it was handled in a way where it was like, my goodness, like, look what kind of monster has been created as a result of the callousness, the cruelty, the guile, uh, the tone deafness, the, the way the systems have failed him. I mean, just all these different things that can be applied to, to real world life. So um, I think Joaquin Phoenix's performance was captivating. I, I loved how he, you could tell he just threw himself into the role. And, you know, obviously he lost. He kind of went like kind of the Christian Bale route of like, man, he like really altered his physical appearance for the role. And, you know, if you think of Christian Bale, like when he played Chaney, he like gained a ton of weight. And when he was playing the machinist, he lost a ton of weight. And when he was Bruce Wayne. He got all beefed up and stuff. So it was cool to see Joaquin Phoenix do the same thing. If I had to say one negative thing about it, it's just that this was certainly a one-off in terms of a character study of the Joker that doesn't actually hold tightly to the roots of the comic book Joker. And I think the, I, I found myself kind of missing that part because that is a necessary component to the formula that makes up the character Joker. So, but I'm conflicted with it because it's like, oh, how do you, how do you go about it? And I think that's what it goes back to what is so fun about having different creatives take their turns in their storytelling, you know, uh, being able to watch Jack Nicholson's portrayal of the Joker versus Heath Ledger versus Joaquin Phoenix. And they all come from different backgrounds and different. Absolutely. <laughs> different backgrounds, different motivations, different approaches to the subject material. And each one of them is, is amazing to watch. And I think that that's a really cool thing. So <sighs> I think I will give this film 4.5 out of five stars. I knew it. I can't give it a perfect rating uh, partially because I'm very, I mean, this is, I love the world of Batman. So I look at it with a very just critical eye because I want to make sure that that things are done well. And, and this movie does a lot of stuff really, really well. Um, I'm very, very happy that, that this film got made. I'm, I'm thrilled that I got to see it. I definitely recommend people go and check it out. Do not take your little kiddos uh, to go see it. But um, no, I, I think that this is definitely <laughs> a thought provoking film that, like you said, it, it, it demands an introspective, um, reflection after you watch it. I think everybody will have that when they go see this movie. What, so, was, your, what was your favorite scene, Russ? I have no idea. 
there are so many great scenes. I mean, the scene in the bus, for instance, when he hand, I love it when he handed her that card and we really got kind of a, a first hand exposure to the, the uh, socially awkward laugh that he can't control. And you, and you see him saying, sorry, like he's apologizing when he can. And in between the cackle, and reading what's going on, you're like, oh my gosh, like that was such a great scene. Or like another scene was <clears throat> when his his ex-colleagues come to pay him a visit because they heard about what happened to his mom and stuff and knowing that he's the one who killed his mom. And that entire scene where like he kills that guy who was his, co- his co-worker who basically was like in self-preservation mode, was like trying to like pin it all on Arthur. And um, that, was, that scene was so intense. I mean, it was, I thought it was amazing watching... First of all, like just seeing only the white paint on his face, that was super creepy. Um, <clears throat> and then watching his interactions with um, the small person who was who watched Arthur kill this, this bigger guy and see, I mean, I felt so much for that guy who was like, I mean, he was in the corner. I mean, he was freaking out. He didn't know what, he felt so helpless. And especially when he goes to the door and he can't reach the lock thing. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, she's going to kill him too. That was my favorite scene. Actually. Um, I think that, that, that was actually, I loved how, how that whole scene played out because to me, that is, how, that is the Joker through and through. He is so unpredictable. You don't know what he's going to do when you think, you know, you don't know. Yeah. He didn't feel any remorse. He goes, he just kind of took care of a problem in a sense. Well, and again, like I thought it was very telling how like he just, he doesn't just let the other person go. He like kisses him on the head and he's like, you're the only person who's ever been kind to me. Because again, people make the mistake of thinking that Joker's just insane and that's it. No, he's totally acutely aware of his surroundings. He has his own twisted sense of justice. That's the crazy thing about the world of Batman. Every villain in the Batman world is literally a kind of like twisted mirrored version of Batman. Like, like when Bruce Wayne made a decision to become Batman, it's literally like you could take and replace any of the villains. Uh, if you were to hold Batman up, like if Batman were to, to take a left in the fork in the road of his life versus the right that he took. And you look at someone like Joker, or you look at someone like two face or penguin, you know, they all represent like a more corrupted version of something. If Bruce had not, or had, had, excuse me, had, had succumbed to his, sense of loss and his issues and everything else. So much to love about this movies and the story. Do you want them to make another version of this movie with a different Batman villain? Yes. I, for one would love to continue this, this standalone movie thing, as long as they do it the way they did it with this Joker movie. Absolutely. I would love to see a Two-Face, Harvey Dent Two-Face. Um, Penguin, absolutely. Um, just, just Riddler. I just want Mr. Freeze. <clears throat> Mr. Freeze? That, that's yeah. all I want. I just want Mr. Freeze. Well, and we'll have to see how that all uh, pans out. But so happy with this movie. I cannot recommend it enough. Again, it's a very different film. It's not the kind of film that leaves you with a lot of joyful feelings when you leave, but <laughs> no joy. No, <clears throat> it, it's, it's a joyism <laughs> in a different capacity altogether. It causes one to think, which I think is really, really cool. 
That wraps up this episode of Joy Guys, and make sure you tune in next week. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to check out patreon.com slash joygasm and consider becoming a monthly contributor. You'll get exclusive perks and early access to the show, not to mention it really helps us doing what we love to do. Also, you can follow us on social media and YouTube. Just do a search for Joygasm TV. Last but not least, search Joygasm TV on Twitch to see us stream our gaming adventures live every Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Central Time. We will see you next week, and my voice will be back to normal. Bye.